And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot? So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to uh, see you. Um, this does kind of feel like a, a back to school as we uh, uh, approach um, a new year, a new kind of church calendar um, for us kind of runs September through. So um, yeah, it's uh, Good to see everybody again and, and some new faces as well. Um, we're continuing in our series. This is the second to the last in this series. Uh, it's the last letter of the seven letters to the churches uh, in Revelation that we're going to look at. Next week, we're going to kind of do a recap and go back to chapter one. In each of these descriptions, each of these letters, we start with this authoritative introduction, and that, that includes some kind of description of Jesus. Um, and each of those are kind of pulled from chapter one, where we get a longer description of him. And so next week, we're going to go back and actually just look at um, Jesus um, and, and to uh, see that he is really the source of what we draw all of our confidence from as we kind of recap and look back over these um, lessons of the seven churches um, here. And so, so we come to the last church. This is the uh, church of Laodicea. Um, Laodicea is located in the Lycus Valley, um, along with two churches that aren't mentioned in these letters, but Heropolis uh, was a church that was six miles to the north, and Colossae, um, which is obviously Paul wrote to the uh, church in Colossians, uh, Colossae, the letter of Colossians, uh, which would be about 10 miles to the east. And so uh, you can go there today. This is in, in Turkey, and um, kind of see this valley, this Lycus Valley that is there. And uh, it, when you stand in Laodicea, you can actually see Heropolis up on the mountain um, because of the feature of uh, these hot pools that are there. And there's this calcium that's kind of um, deposited. So you can see this big white spot up on, on the hill. And then you can actually see a, Col a Colossae as well because there's a, a mound and a, a hill that's there. And so from this valley and particularly from this position, you can see these two other churches. And we'll see that here in a second. So you can kind of see on the map as we've come through. Here um, are some pictures of Laodicea, um, present day. So um, Laodicea, as we'll see, is very, was a very wealthy city. Um, and just by walking around it, um, you can actually feel that. You can, it was obviously a very well-structured city. Um, 
just from what is left, you can tell there's some impressive structures and, and buildings and um, colonnades and um, all sorts of things that were there. That's kind of the amphitheater um, or, or what's left of it. It's a, it's a beautiful location um, in this valley, kind of surrounded uh, by mountains on, on each side as well. Um, big promenade that was there. Um, uh, so here in the church, uh, in the corner, we have the baptistry. So where they would have baptized uh, believers, new believers, and notice the baptistry is in uh, the shape of a cross, a uh, cruciform. Uh, so here in the church. Um, uh, there you go. Um, you can even see by that church, um, it was a wealthy church. Um, it was, it was uh, you know, if you could kind of go back in time, it'd be a church that would be bigger than the building that you and I are sitting in at the minute. Um, mosaic tiled floors, um, nice Baptistry, big enough uh, to fit adults in, uh, which is interesting. Um, we jab on my Presbyterian friends. Uh, this is Heropolis. This isn't uh, Laodicea. I'm joking, um, kind of. Uh, this is Heropolis. <laughs> this is Heropolis. Uh, so this overlooks the valley. Uh, Laodicea would be down in this valley. Um, and what's interesting about Heropolis, this isn't just geography lesson. This is all going to be important here, as we'll see. Uh, Heropolis was known for these hot springs, still is today, um, so you can go there, there's me, um, had to get in there, had to get the feet in there, and um, so these really are my holiday snaps at this point, isn't it, and uh, proof that I was in Colossae as well, there you go, um, Heropolis was known for these hot springs, still is today, and um, really had these kind of medicinal purposes, these hot mineral springs. Uh, the people would go and soak in essentially big hot tubs, as it were. Um, it's a beautiful place today. And then Colossae was, was known for, and, and is, um, when I was there, there's still this river that runs through there, and it's freezing cold water, um, clear, crisp water um, that flows off the mountains uh, down, down and through Colossae. Um, and Laodicea sat in between these two places, uh, but didn't really have its own water source. It had to pipe its water in um, through these kind of clay pipes that they had. And so this is going to, um, as we know and understand what's happening here, um, some, of, some of the history of, of this city and of this church that's here comes through in how Jesus addresses them and what's here. And so the Laodiceans are, uh, it's a very relevant letter to uh, the church, particularly the church in the West, I think, today. Um, because Laodicea um, is an affluent church. It's wealthy. Um, it's self-sufficient. Uh, the whole city is self-sufficient. Um, as, as we've seen in some of these letters, these, a lot of these cities were destroyed by earthquakes uh, because they, they're in a fault line that essentially that's here. And a lot of them um, were rebuilt by Rome, um, particularly Tiberius um, helps and comes and helps rebuild this city. Uh, the same happened in Laodicea, except they didn't need Rome's help. Um, they were wealthy enough to do it themselves. And so they didn't need uh, any help from the emperor to come uh, and to help rebuild them. And this is really what we want to hear the Spirit say to the church of Laodicea. Um, like maybe an affluent or apathetic kind of church today, um, Christ rebukes them from their kind of smug self-sufficiency. Um, and he tenderly appeals to them to pursue wholehearted devotion and reliance on him. And often affluence and apathy go hand in hand. Not always, um, but often. Um, 
unless we fall into the trap of thinking that we aren't among the affluence, um, we are certainly globally. Um, maybe not compared to your neighbor or people that are older than you or further on in their career, um, but certainly all of us in this room would be considered among the rich and the affluent um, when we think about all of humanity. And so affluence, prosperity, they can, it can often make a church, a people, a, a, a community self-satisfied and often kind of lukewarm towards the things of God. There's just kind of an apathy that kind of sets in. And often economic prosperity can lead to this loss of depending on the spirit, of relying on God to provide. Not just provide for our physical needs, um, but provide for our most foundational needs as well. We can view success um, as having a lot of money. Um, People uh, with churches, well, listen, we've got our own buildings now. Um, You know, we're making our budget Barely, if you come to our members meeting tonight, we'll talk more about that tonight. Um, we are, we are making budget though, that's good. Um, within that, and we can kind of have this apathy kind of set in, especially for us as a young church, um, just over five years old. It's easy to maybe forget the beginning when we, we were renting facilities, we were meeting in a house, we met in a pub for a while, like we didn't have anything. Um, we were completely relying on the support of other people, but there was a sense of urgency and that God was with us and a sense of mission, um, and then it'd be very easy to go, well, listen, we've got a building. Well, actually, we have two buildings now. We have two congregations in different parts of the city, and we can kind of just let apathy and not really depending on the Spirit set in. Jesus wants them and us to stay dependent, to stay connected to the vine. And Christ addresses their self-confidence in this last letter. And it's this piercing kind of report um, within that. How many of you are are good test takers? You're like, I I do pretty good. I I can kill it at an exam. No one. Awesome. Great. So we're all like me then, right? How many of you dread exams? Like, I'm not a great test taker. Like, I know the information. If we could talk about it, like, if I can talk about it, we're good. If you make me, like, recall stuff and I have to put it on paper, then I get a little bit nervous, right? Um, but we've all had that kind of after you've taken an exam, that feeling where you're like, okay, I'm done. And you kind of self-evaluate, how, how did I do? And there are times where you're like, I totally bombed that test. And you know, like, you know you've bombed it. And then there are other times where you're like, I think I did pretty good on that test. I think I, uh, you know, that cramming session last night paid off. Um, and when those results match up, it's great. What's, what's not great is when you feel like that, you're like, man, I killed that test. And you walk away feeling pretty good. And then you get the result, and you've, bombed, you've actually bombed it. And you're like, what, what went wrong? I thought, even when I was done, I thought, man, held, held my hand up high. and thought, man, I really, really killed it on that one. And then your teacher, your professor, like, has to give you the feedback. And it's like, have you listened and paid attention at all? And this is the situation that we have here. We have a church um, that thinks they're doing well. That's expecting a good report. They're expecting to ace the exam. And Jesus, the teacher, comes, and it's some bad news. They would have assumed that Christ would have praised them, that surely they thought they had passed the test, that Jesus would commend them. But there is no commendation here. Um, There's a a report back in uh, in the 90s, and they would... Um, they had studied these different eight, eight different countries 
in developed countries, and they studied their mathematical skills of their students in these eight countries. Um, and then afterwards, they, um, th- you know, they ranked them, um, each of these kind of countries, from best in their mathematical competence to their worst. And um, what was interesting about that was the Koreans ranked first um, at math, and uh, of the eight countries, the Americans <laughs> ranked last. Um, in math. This isn't any diss on any kind of country. But what, what was interesting is they then asked the students where they thought they would have ranked. And unsurprisingly, the Americans thought they ranked first. <laughs> and they didn't. They ranked last. But the Koreans who ranked first actually thought that they, were, they would be the worst. Um, and it's interesting the kind of correlation that's there, isn't it? Um, sometimes we think, man, we, we, are, we are doing great at this. But the reality doesn't match up with our own self-assessment. The Laodiceans, in their self-assessment, thought they were doing well. But Jesus says they actually make them want to vomit. Strong language. And here's why. At the very end of the day, they stopped depending on Jesus. They became self-sufficient. They were self-satisfied. And that led to their self-deception. Self-awareness, I think, is one of the most important aspects for the Christian life, right? It's been said that the Christian life is an examined life, that we are examining our own life, that we are aware of of where we are spiritually within that. Um, And yet, the Bible over and over again tells us that we can fall into a self-deception, um, it's why we need each other. It's why we meet in missional communities with community groups. We need other people with eyes on our life that can see up close when we start to deceive ourselves. That can help us actually stay rooted in truth and rooted in what's really going on in our lives. And this was the problem with Laodicea. A few more um, things as we start to move into then the authoritative introduction. Um, We've kind of said they had this relationship between these other uh, churches. Um, this, these three big cities were part of uh, Phrygia, um, this, this kingdom, this region that's here. Um, and there was two Im- very important imperial trade routes uh, that passed through um, Laodicea. That's no doubt a big part of why they were such a wealthy and influential city. They were a commercial center. They were the richest city in the region in Phrygia. And they were known for really three things. Um, and it's interesting, these three things, um, as, as it kind of comes out. The first thing they were interested in was textile industry. Um, they still, it still is. The modern city of uh, Denizil in that area is still known for textiles and, and making clothes. Um, particularly, the clothing, they had this local soft black wool. So there's this black wool um, that they were famous for. Um, so it was like, you know, the different brand or whatever, you know, layout of sea in black wool was the thing going on in the day. Second, it was a, it was a, a major banking um, place, um, a, a large banking industry that was there because of the commercial trade that was going on. And then third, there was a, a medical college that was there. It was the largest one in Asia Minor. And what they were famous for was this Phrygian salve, and it was used for curing eye diseases. So they have this uh, medical college that particularly um, focused on the eyes and the ears. 
And Laodicea is often chosen as this major example of wealth. Um, the coins from that area depict this cornucopia, this symbol of wealth, of, of prosperity, of plenty, of affluence. Um, there was a, an, a, a resident there called Hero who bequeathed 2,000 talents. That'd be seven million, several, several million in today's kind of terms to the city. Um, the Xenoid family was so wealthy and powerful that several of their men, uh, members uh, achieved royal status because of their wealth. And they have this remarkable boasting of buildings, of spas, gymnasiums, a stadium, um, uh, all kinds of different um, wealth and affluence as you walk through the city. Again, so wealthy that they didn't even need the assistance from Rome to rebuild. They didn't need Rome's help. And in many ways, the church mirrors this attitude in not needing God's help. They were final by themselves. But Jesus says you're deceived, that you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And so here we have this authoritative introduction, Jesus introducing himself. He says, the words of the amen. This is the only place in scripture where amen is actually uh, used as a name. Um, This idea of an amen, an echo of God's truth. It also affirms Jesus as this ultimate fulfillment of God's promises we see in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Jesus is the, the amen. We sing this song, right? The, um, every promise is yes and amen. It's this double amen that we see in the book of John, this truly, truly, this verily, verily, that we can trust Jesus' words. It says these are the words of the faithful and true witness. The unchangeable witness is reliable. Jesus knows and sees all. It's his Words that are faithful and true, that they can be trusted. His evaluation is a true evaluation. Our evaluation, our self-evaluation, our self-awareness isn't always accurate. Probably very rarely is it 100% accurate. But Jesus' evaluation, what he sees, is always 100% accurate. It says, um, it goes on then. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And this doesn't mean that he was created, that Jesus is created, right? That's heresy. Um, so we believe that Jesus has always been eternal. But if we look in Colossians 1, it's the same, similar kind of language that's used um, in Colossians 1, um, in verse 15. It says, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he's the first created being. In verse 16, it continues, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is this description of Jesus, that he is the origin, he is the source of God's creation. There's a number of resemblance is, to this letter, to the letter of Colossians as well. And it might be that, that John is calling their attention to that. The self-satisfied Laodiceans thought they were in control of everything, but they had been deceived. And Jesus is reminding them that he alone is sovereign. That he is the head of the church. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the Lord of the new creation to come. 
And this doctrine of, the Lord's, uh, of Christ's lordship, it should humble us. It should rid us of pride, of, of our arrogance. That we remember that Christ alone reigns, that he, as we've sung this morning, gives us breath. Every breath, every day is a gift from, from God. That we are dependent on him, not just for our very life and sustenance, but also to bear spiritual fruit. This is the God, the source of all creation, the sustainer of all creation, the ones whose words are faithful and true, the words of the amen of God himself who is evaluating. And then we come to the all-knowing evaluation. There's nothing that he sees to praise or commend. It's all warning that's here. And his evaluation is that you are neither cold nor hot. Now, this is often a misunderstood um, kind of verse, right? We kind of use this idea of, well, don't be a lukewarm Christian. God would either want you to be on fire for the Lord or just cold, like not a Christian at all. So that, that's not what this verse is saying. Um, there is an idea that we can be lukewarm in our faith. But Jesus is saying, you, I wish that you either hot or cold because both of those are useful. And again, we come back to the geography of this area. Heropolis had hot water. They had hot mineral water that was actually used for healing properties. Colossae had cold water um, that was refreshing that you could drink. Laodicea was piping their water in through these clay pipes. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it wasn't worth drinking. Um, So if you were drinking the water there, especially if you were a visitor, weren't used to the water, it would often make you sick. Um, It had a stench and a a smell to it, we know from um, historical records. Um, And it would often make you vomit. And this is what Jesus is actually saying. I wish that you were useful. Hot water, cold water, both useful. You get into a hot tub, you expect it to actually be hot tub, not a tepid tub. You just get in, it's kind of lukewarm water. You're like, what am I I sitting in this for? Like, what's the use of this? Right? Or on a really hot summer day, obviously not here, but like on holiday, you get into like a cold, refreshing pool or a cold drink of ice water. They're useful. But just tepid, lukewarm water that makes you sick. And this is what he's calling the church. They're useless. They're, they're not worth anything. They're not good for anything. And they need to be spewed out. The city had everything they needed but one thing. Good drinking water. Their source of their water was worthless. Jesus is saying, you're just like your water. You're not, you're not good for anything. You're ineffective. You don't provide refreshment for the weary. You don't bring healing to the sick. They were ineffective and distasteful to the Lord. And what's behind that? What's, what's the reason for that? Well, Jesus identifies that as well. He says, you say I'm rich. <laughs> you say I'm rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich, nothing wrong with being wealthy, but they had grown self-sufficient. They had grown dependent on their wealth, their own self-sustainability, rather than depending on the Lord. That's a great temptation of the wealthy. The reality is, the more we have, the harder it actually is to trust in God. We think it'd be the other way around. 
And then he says, you're not actually seeing the reality. You think you're rich. You think you're secure. You think you have all of, all of what you need. But in reality, you're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. You're actually spiritually impoverished. You think you're rich, but you're not. You're poor. <laughs> These five marks of their spiritual condition, they're wretched. They're miserable. It's this word that was used for just devastated countries. This isn't a word that would be used for a wealthy, glorious city that you would walk through and be impressed by. It says you're pitiable. You're the object of extreme pity. Do you think that's how the Laodiceans would have assessed themselves? Walking through their city, center of commerce, of banking, walking into their nice church building with the mosaic tiles, that cool cruciform baptistry. Nothing wrong with those things. But do you think that they would have thought people would have seen that and pitied them? Not at all. They're poor. In a city that bragged of its wealth, of its commerce, of its banking. He says you're blind. And again, this dig at a city that prided itself in its medical school, in this, this Phrygian powder, this salve. And he says you're naked. Even though they boasted in their wool and clothing making. Everything that they thought was providing for them is actually a deficit for them. It's like the emperor's clothes. Remember that, that fable where the con artist um, tricked the, the king into to thinking that they've got this uh, invisible thread and they, they've made him this, this clothes and he goes out, you know, uh, out on this parade completely naked thinking that he's clothed in these amazing clothes, and he ends up being the laughingstock. These emperors new clothes that aren't actually clothes at all. He's exposed. And this is exactly what's happening here. The church in Laodicea similar uh, it, um, it, it is the opposite of Smyrna. You remember what Jesus says to them in 2.9? He says, you're, you're poor, but you're actually rich. They're the opposite. They didn't have material wealth. They didn't have any influence. They're being persecuted. And because of their faithfulness and dependence on Jesus, Jesus says, you're rich. You have everything you need. You're secure. It's possible to be wealthy, to be secure, to have everything that you need materially, and still be good for nothing spiritually. And so he gives them the appropriate exhortation then in verses 18 to 20. Now action is required once the truth has been revealed, once their eyes have been opened to that. Um, we're going to look at five, five needs um, that they have. And they all begin with R. Handy. So the first thing they need is they need Christ's riches. In verse 18, he says, Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Not the actual gold that you have, not material wealth and gold, but this gold that's been tested, refined by a fire. It's been tested. What's come through that testing, what's come through that fire is pure. And he speaks to them in a way that commercially minded church would have understood. Hey, forsake your other suppliers and buy from me. All the suppliers in Laodicea can't actually meet your actual needs, but I can't. And this is how 
Jesus and his followers are described. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, it, it, it calls the followers of Jesus as poor, yet making many rich. That's not materially rich. That's because we go forward with the gospel, because we go forth with the good news of Jesus. Jesus is described as one who became poor that we might be rich in him, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And Ephesians 1, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the bottom line. If you have nothing but Christ, you have everything. You have everything you need. If you have everything but Christ, you have nothing. Jesus puts it this way when he asks the question, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? What what profit is it in the end if you have everything that you could ever want but Christ and lose your soul? It's all temporary. It's all hevel, if you remember our, our Ecclesiastes series. It's a chasing after the wind. None of it lasts. And ask people who actually have what, what you think you want, and they, they, all, they all say, they all say the same thing. I, Jim Carrey actually said, I wish everybody got what they wanted, fame, wealth, prosperity, celebrity, so that they then understood it doesn't actually fill the hole in your soul. They needed Christ riches. Second thing they needed was Christ's righteousness. Second part of uh, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, their black wool was a big thing. People in the Roman Empire boasted of their Laodicean attire, right? Um, Brands are, you know, a big deal, right? We all want people to know our latest brand. That's why we put brands on there. Is that a Gucci bag you got there? Is that a Supreme? That's a cool hip brand, right? I don't know. I've seen it a lot. It must be. Champion, whatever. Champion used to be like a ghetto brand when I was a kid. Now all of a sudden it's like a cool brand. I was like, should have hung on to those shoes. We want to be decked out to be seen. But this appeal... Um, it's strong, isn't it? Especially in the West. You just can't have clothes. You have to have the right clothes. You have to have the right kind. And again, there's nothing wrong with looking nice. But the question for them is, and for us is, what do we value most? Our external appearance or our interior spiritual life? Though they're decked out, Jesus says you're naked and shameful. And that you need to actually be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the garments of Christ. White symbolizes this uh, um, imputed righteousness, this purity of the Savior. It also um, is, is, it refers to the righteous acts of the saints. We see this all through the, book, the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, 7, 9, 19. They needed to be clothed from their spiritual nakedness by the righteousness of Jesus. Third thing they needed was Christ's remedy. He also counsels them to buy um, salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
This was a city that boasted in their eyes to have, but the church was spiritually blind and blind to its own spiritual condition. And only the great physician, Jesus, had the cure for their blindness. We see this even in John 9, right? Jesus actually heals a, a person blind, physical blindness. Um, and he's drug in because he was healed on the Sabbath day. That's a no-no for the Jews. Drug in, and he's being questioned by the Pharisees. Who was who it that healed you? What, all of this kind of stuff. And he's like, listen, at the end of the day, he's like, I, I don't know all the technicalities. What I know is I, I was born blind. I couldn't see before. Jesus showed up, healed me, and here I stand before you, a man with sight. I can see. Jesus doesn't just heal physical blindness. He, most importantly, heals our spiritual blindness. Come to me, I can supply you the real riches. Jesus has the true gold. Come to me and I can cover your shame and nakedness with my righteousness. Come to me and I can give you spiritual sight so that you can actually see. And it's a call for these Christians to return to Jesus. They needed, fourthly, Christ's rebuke. These are strong words that Jesus is delivering to them. But what motivates Jesus to do that? What, what motivates Jesus to rebuke them, to correct them? We'll see it in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Love is the motivation behind his rebuke. We need Christ's rebuke. We, need, we want Jesus to correct us. Why? Because it's proof of his love for us. If you're a parent, you know that, right? I hate disciplining my kids. I don't get a lot of joy out of that. But I do it because I love them. I want them to grow up to be um, productive members of society. I want them to be the right kind of people. I want them to walk in obedience to Jesus. And so we rebuke, we correct. And he gives them two commands. One, to repent, change your actions, change direction regarding your lack of reliance on me, the silence of your testimony. We're to change, we're to repent of that. We're to see our error and change course. And then he says to do that urgently, be zealous, take on a new life. Be zealous daily for me. And so how can they do that? How can they change direction? How can they be different? Which is the fifth thing they need and we need is they need Christ's renewal. They need renewed communion with him. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is a verse that gets kind of misused a little bit. We often use this for like evangelistic purposes, right? Um, as if Jesus is standing outside the door knocking and relying on a lost person to, to open the door to let him in. Um, but this isn't an evangelistic verse. This is like all the other letter, letters written to the church. This isn't an evangelistic text written to outsiders. It's an invitation to Christians who in their self-sufficiency have ignored the Lord essentially locked him out. 
This is the language that we see in the Song of Songs in chapter 5 where the groom is knocking at the door of his bride. It's Jesus, the lover, appealing to his bride, the church. And notice while addressing the church, it's also applied to individuals. If anyone hears my voice. So we all, all of us this morning have to ask, is that me? Has my heart grown cold and lukewarm and a bit apathetic? Am I relying more on my own self, my own determination, my own self-will, which always eventually fails us in the end? The answer is to allow the Lord in to commune, to enjoy fresh intimacy with him. And notice what kind of intimacy it is. I will eat with him and he with me. Open the door to renewed intimacy with me, he says. I haven't given up on you. You're naked, you're blind, you're, you're pitiable, you're wretched, you're poor. And yet I still want to come. I want to come and commune. I want to come. He hasn't given up on them. He isn't shaming them. Out of love, he's calling them back. A lot like that first letter to the Ephesians, to their first love. To share a meal with someone in the ancient world particularly was a big deal. You remember there are certain people, even the Jews, wouldn't eat with Gentiles because they were seen to be unclean. Peter, when Jesus says, listen, I want you to, to get up. I want you to, one, eat what you think is unclean, and then I want you to go to the house of someone who's unclean. He's like, no way. I'm not doing that. And Jesus is like, uh, I'm Jesus. <laughs> it's okay. And he broke down this wall of hostility. Eating with someone was a big deal back then, and it still is today. To share our table, to share uh, a meal is, a, is an intimate thing that we do. It's one of the main reasons why it's a big part of our missional community, that we come together, we share a meal together every week. Jesus welcomes and welcomes sinners to the table to dine, and he still does. He offers you reconciliation this morning. He offers you renewed fellowship this morning. This invitation, this idea of coming and dining with him to the church is this preview that we see later on in the book of Revelation, this great messianic feast to come where Jesus actually comes and sets the table and invites us to come and dine with him. It's one of the reasons why we break bread every week together. We look forward to this meal that Jesus sets for us, where we will commune with him, where sin will be no more. All of the things that, that, that make us self-sufficient, that, that tempt us to be wretched and poor and blind, all those things are removed. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that meal. But it's a meal that looks back as well, that we remember, we proclaim the death of Jesus. Because it was through his body broken, it's through his blood shed that we are brought in and clothed in his righteousness. It's how he reconciles us. It's one of the reasons we do it every week is because our hearts can grow cold. We forget. I need to remember week after week after week to rely on who Jesus is. And then we get this awe-inspiring conclusion. Verse 21 
To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have some remarkable promises in these letters to these churches. Um, John Stott, I think, is correct when he said, the pros- this prospect, sitting on the throne with Jesus, exceeds in glory all the other promises to the overcomer. This throne is a symbol of authority, um, of victory. It's used 41 times just in this book of Revelation, 55 times in the New Testament. And I think part of the reason it's used here is, is to provide this link with the next chapters in 4 and 5. I encourage you to read them. It's this description of the throne room, of Jesus on the throne. And that we are promised to be a part of that. There's this kind of three-stage development of the throne in the Bible overall. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is on the throne in his majesty and his judgment. In the Gospels, then, Jesus as the Son of Man partakes in God's throne, um, also in his majesty and his judgment. So we see um, in Matthew 19 and 25, Revelation 4, Yahweh is on the throne. Revelation 5, Jesus in his redemptive work is on the throne. Jesus ascends and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But then look in Matthew 19 as well. Um, Matthew 19, verse 28. This incredible verse. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, in the new heavens, the new earth, when the Son of Man, that's him, Jesus, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. If we will overcome, if we will stay dependent on Jesus, we actually get to be partakers with him in his rule and reign. This is a major motif, especially of this book, of Christus Victor, is Christ is the overcomer. He is the champion. He overcomes death and hell itself. And for those of us that will remain faithful to him, we get to partake in that victory. We get to partake in that. And all of this happens through our union with Christ. When we repent of our sins, when we believe the gospel, when we um, turn from our own self-reliance, our own self-sufficiency, we give our life to Jesus, trust him in that, there's this union with Christ that happens, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can break that. And it's in that union with Christ that we get all of the promises, all the yes and amen in Jesus. And so through him and by him, we overcome. And through him, we also will, will, will rule and reign. What are the details of that? I have no idea. And neither does anybody else. But it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. That God, with those who are faithful, with those who will overcome, we actually get to share in his rule and reign. And we do this by emulating him by relying on him, by trusting in him, by communing with him, by abiding in him, by remaining in him. We said there's this kind of paradox in the scripture, right? There are these commands that we're commanded to do, but that God does for us as well. So we're commanded to remain in his love, do all that we can to remain in him, to abide in him. And yet it is Jesus who keeps us. It is Jesus who holds us. From the perspective of the world, Jesus' story was a complete failure. Murdered, killed, buried, dead. 
But from the perspective of heaven, it was the path to the throne. It's how he became Christus Victor, by entering into death, overcoming death itself. They crucify him, but he, he becomes the firstborn from the dead. He's seated on the throne in glory, and he shares that glory with those who have persevering witness with him. And so we need to hear these words. May we not become self-sufficient, self-reliant, sliding into this kind of apathy, going through the motions because we don't really need Jesus, not really stepping out in faith, not really sharing our faith, not actually risking anything that we might actually need the power of God for, but just doing what we can do in our own strength, by our own resources. Not really trusting and relying on him. May we, again, be recommitted to commune with Jesus daily. Opening that door, allowing him in to dine with us. The one who dines with sinners and calls us his own, calls us his bride. May we look to the one, the faithful, the true witness, the amen. That is the source of our spiritual renewal every single time. Let's pray.